Hello and welcome to Adam and Eve on CJSR FM, 88.5 FM in Edmonton and around the world on CJSR.com. My name is Luis Fuentes and I'll be your host for today's episode of Adam and Eve. Thanks for tuning in. Adam and Eve is Edmonton's only feminist news radio show. We are adamant on highlighting, discussing and engaging with issues that affect women across Edmonton and around the world. Because of this resurgence in right-wing extremism all over the world, we wanted to see how white supremacy connected to feminist and anti-patriarchal struggles. We've created a two-part series where we talk to experts about white supremacy. In last week's episode, we talked to Dr. Rangwala about ideological adaptation, and if you haven't had a chance to listen to that, you can find it by searching Adam and Eve wherever you normally listen to, to our podcasts. In this episode, we talked to the director of Intermedia Research Studio with the Department of Sociology at the University of Alberta, Professor Dr. Mukherjee. Adam and Eve producers, Wen Chen and Rose Eva Forrest Jenkins, chatted with Dr. Mukherjee about the ethics of care work, the division between universities and activists and resistance to green capitalism. Dr. Mukherjee talks about how a lot of his research is inspired by ecofeminism. So we wanted to take some time to explain more about what that is for folks who are unfamiliar. We found a quote by Ariel Saleh, who writes in her book Ecofeminism as Politics. Quote, While many feminists may be content with nothing more than equality alongside men in the existing system, Ecofeminists are concerned about global sustainability as much as gender justice. In fact, they see the two as intrinsically interlinked. Close quotation. Here's our interview with Dr. Mukherjee on this subject. Enjoy. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us, Dr. Mukherjee. Uh, we're really looking forward to learning more about your research. Uh, we recently had a conversation with Shama Rangwala about ideological adaptation when it comes to white supremacy. So we're looking forward to keeping the conversation about uh, dismantling white supremacy going. My name is uh, Sarayan Mukherjee. I'm the director of the Intermedia Research Studio at the Department of Sociology here at the University of Alberta. And my pronouns are he and him. In my research, um, uh, I've addressed, uh, in recent times anyway, I've addressed three main things. As, as a social theorist, um, my research is in, engaged in seeking to, to delink the social sciences from the colonizer's model of the world. Secondly, my research has examined the class and cultural politics of renewable energy transition uh, in Alberta specifically, but with refer- reference to a, a global context as well. And then thirdly, uh, my research has for a long time uh, been concerned with understanding uh, racism both historically and uh, in its relationship with what I and some other researchers call uh, interlocking systems of oppression. Um, and especially with respect to uh, social relations of class, which is something that we in North America have kind of forgotten how to talk about. As you speak of like those interlocking um, systems of oppression, it makes me think of how that's really tied to green capitalism um, and especially here in Alberta, the oil industry and its violence on indigenous peoples. Yeah, do you want to kind of speak on that a little bit? 
Sure, yeah. So something that uh, other people talk about in terms of the politics of intersectionality, which is an attempt to try and understand how different kinds of different systems of oppression uh, intersect and, and combine together and so on. Now, um, me and other people use the term interlocking oppressions, and the, the dis distinction is in some ways a uh, or the terms uh, are, are, are similar and it might seem like it's a, a rather minimal difference in some ways, it doesn't really matter what terms we use. But the key issue is that uh, when people talked about um, intersecting oppressions, they talked about it within two, kind of, two kinds of frameworks. I mean, the idea itself emerged in the context of uh, critical legal, legal scholarship in the, in the United States. And thinking about law in North America especially, um, always limits you in terms of thinking in terms of uh, the re responsibilities, culpabilities um, um, of individuals. So it's very hard to think uh, because it's the law finds individuals either uh, uh, innocent or, or guilty. So it's very hard to go from that to think in collective political uh, terms, right? And then the, the the problematic was really taken up in the context, especially in the humanities, in people thinking about this in terms of how um, the production of meaning, discourses and ideologies and so on uh, are part of the process of reproducing sexism, racism, homophobia, all of those uh, systems of oppression. Now, the thing there is that Lots of people noticed that when you have these binary oppositions, let's say man, woman, black, white, and so on, that one term is devalued and another term is sort of normalized. Now, to understand how that devaluation happens, right, you can only understand that by tracing its history. And this is what the whole uh, discussion of interlocking oppressions as opposed to intersecting oppressions is trying to push us towards is to think in terms of the history of racial capitalism as to how it is that uh, these systems of oppression keep getting reproduced even though uh, powerful people in the world are constantly telling us that we have solved these problems. Um, they're now in the past and, and so on, right? And uh, so anyway, that's one aspect of it. Secondly, uh, in terms of the question of green capitalism and interlocking oppressions, I mean, political ecologists talk about something called environmental racism, and this is itself a term that was uh, um, invented and mobilized and brought into the research world by uh, activists, community activists, particularly people of color in the United States who were suffering from, um, you know, environmental pollution of various kinds of, that toxic industries and so on would tend to be located in their communities and their neighborhoods and so on. And then in the global south, you also had resource extraction industries that were dispossessing people of their means of subsistence uh, around the world. And uh, they were fighting back against this. So that whole idea of environmental justice and environmental racism comes out of that, that history, right? And one of the things about capitalism is that um, uh, it because it must grow in order for uh, uh, wealth in its very specific form that is capital in, in order for that wealth to be produced and most importantly uh, in order for the the relationships of power that this system this economic system uh, depends upon for that system of of power to be reproduced it, it must grow and so it must always be um, uh, uh, externalizing 
pollution, violence, um, dispossession onto specific groups of people who are racialized and gendered, um, uh, people who are uh, disempowered in various kinds of ways historically. And this is why understanding that history, that history of racial capitalism is so important to understanding our present. Yeah, I really resonated with what you said about like the, the, the dehistoricization of oppression and how that like puts things in the past for us not to engage critically with, but we're like living through those histories right now. And I saw this post on the Just Seeds Instagram. They, they were saying like how no countries are poor, they're overexploited. And I think in particular communities of color um, and especially femmes and women are more so impacted by this. Could you maybe talk about like your project with feminist energy futures and how that's kind of related? Sure, yeah. The feminist energy futures is looking at these issues of uh, renewable energy transition from a feminist perspective, particularly from an eco-feminist, um, decolonial, degrowth kind of uh, uh, eco-feminist perspective. And one of the things um, about the kinds of positions, theoretical positions that eco-feminism has developed over, over the years, and particularly um, the work of people like Ariel Salah, uh, Sylvia Federici, Maria Mies, and so on, uh, uh, draw our attention to the fact that historically, uh, women have all women's lives and uh, their place in the social order of things has always um, uh, had deep roots and this was historically the case with everybody's lives in that regard that that people were engaged in the reproduction of subsistence and therefore uh, the reproduction of something that um, ecofeminists talk about as earth care that is to say um, uh, 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 the care of um, the history of life on the planet, of our, uh, of our ecologies and so on, because this is how um, intergenerationally communities, households, kinship systems could be reproduced, right? And one of the key insights of this um, uh, uh, body of research in that regard is that this forms the basis of a completely different form of wealth, uh, in com contrast and comparison with capital, which is not an eternal universal form of wealth, but a historically very specific form of, of wealth that has involved the colonization of all of these ways in which human beings throughout history have cared for the earth and reproduced the conditions of subsistence. So in our research project, we, uh, kind of operate, operationalize this otherwise very empty buzzword that everybody's talking about as sustainability, you know, uh, for example. Well, if sustainability is to actually mean anything, it must mean the intergenerational reproduction of households and their communities and the ecosystems to which they belong in, in, in that regard, right? So that's in one respect, our point of departure in terms of then thinking about both what's going on, how this energy transition kind of thing is unfolding or not unfolding, uh, and also to try and think about some ways in which uh, it um, it might it ought to unfold so that that people are democratically empowered more by their relationships with to energy and energy systems and so on.
Speaking about like this global solidarity, when we talk about like how the systems of domination and oppression are intertwined and dependent on the liberation of all of these things that are being oppressed and enacted violence upon. For example, like you talked about fascism and colonialism, which is all kind of entwined in European colonialism and white supremacy and capitalism that also sustains this. And I think like a critique of like how our liberation is entwined is that it is pretty vague how these different contexts and resistances will play out and how like we can support each other's um, resistance. And I guess there's also like a critique between academia and what activists are doing sometimes. So how do you kind of like bridge those two ideas? It's interesting, you know, uh, there's a, a number of things uh, about that. And there are, especially in the social sciences, a number of, of people, many of my colleagues, myself included, that sort of see ourselves as kind of activist scholars and, and so on, that our, our research is connected to the world of activi activism in, in some way or other. Now, you know, that's a complicated relationship. And, and one of the things uh, about this, I guess, is that it's worthwhile to remember that universities, uh, modern universities, began life um, as, a, uh, as very elitist uh, institutions. And um, the social sciences in particular were basically social sciences of, of colonialism. Um, and um, uh, in that regard, you know, one of the major impacts, the biggest, one of the biggest impacts, not the only big impact of the social sciences, but one of the biggest impacts of the social sciences ha has been historically uh, the refinement, uh, elaboration and dissemination of uh, racist ideas around the world and racist ideologies um, uh, around the world in the 19th century. That really only changes after the Second World War for a number of different kinds of complex reasons. Um, first of all, the university systems undergo a kind of uh, system-wide expansion after the Second World War um, that allows more and more different kinds of people to come to universities. And you see this in the Canadian public university system. Uh, you can tell which universities predated that, that have these old you know, old style buildings and then the, the uh, brick buildings, uh, the newer universities and the newer parts of campus and, and so on. Well, that's that's that ex that moment of expansion that happened af after the Second World War that brought in women for the first time, people of color for the first time, uh, uh, work people from working backgrounds for the first time. Because before that, in the 19th century, Universities were a place where men of property sent their sons uh, to learn how to, to run the world uh, uh, kind, of, kind of thing, right? So in the social sciences in the 1960s, during that particularly around 1968 and so on, you have this kind of, you know, new social movements enter into the project of the social sciences and start demanding that, that we pose different kinds of questions do our research in different kinds of ways, address different kinds of problems, and so on. But at this, you know, in 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 doing all of that, this is where a kind of critical social science has its uh, origins. But nonetheless, that social science still inherited a lot of models from the 19th century that we're still trying to think our way through, and that's part of what 
what my research is about in, in that regard. But you do have this kind of complicated situation between the world of activism and the world of scholarship, because at, at another kind of level, there's a there's are different kinds of responsibilities that scholars and activists have. And um, activists um, have to be very, whatever their, whatever their rules and principles of consensus making are, that's how they, that's what they follow and that's how they make decisions and so on. Whereas we have those rules, but we have yet other ones that have to do with uh, scholarly rigor, with trying to understand things from other kinds of points of views and so on and so forth. We need to understand why it is that people we disagree with think and behave the way that they do and so on. That's of less importance to, to an activist and, and, and so on. So there's a whole set of tensions that come uh, out, of, out of that, that uh, you know, makes for an uneasy re relationship sometimes. Maybe a follow-up is, there can be those tensions in understanding how both academia and activism can like move in power together while like academia is built on colonial power and occupation in a lot of senses and like the ivory tower of academia definitely still exists. You've raised some good issues there, some important issues. And, and this is a fact that, you know, universities and particularly universities after that um, post-war kind of moment of reform, which has been constantly been rolled back since that time, and especially in the last 30 years, that, that moment of ex expansion, we've been in a, a period of contraction for over 30 years now in, in the public university system, right? And, you know, Canada is interesting in that regard. It's one of the few places in the world that we do have more or less a completely public university system, whereas other places have a mix and, and, and so on. And, and that public system is definitely worthwhile uh, defending and preserving but the thing about it is, is and this is what you're what you're getting at, is that these universities are uh, uh, embody a massive contradiction, in in the sense that universities are integrated in the colonial project historically on the one hand and in contemporary terms, uh, they're also integrated in the project of the accumulation of capital. I mean, in, and especially now, uh, the whole process of uh, capital accumula accumulation. Uh, critically and crucially needs the research university as a, as a means of doing this, right? And that's why we are feeling the full weight of all of that. Uh, and, and then you have, you know, the public mandate uh, of the university, you know, it, it's various kinds of promises to uplift the whole people and, and uh, so on. So these, these two imperatives uh, rarely smoothly jive and um, most often they're in in conflict uh, with with one another and the thing about it is is that um, the institution itself has to for it to work like any other kind of institution has to generate its own culture its own rituals its own weird ways of you know how professors are such w weird creatures and so on and so forth um, that uh, uh, we're all products of that and we're products of that that contradiction in, in that regard, or we embody that, that, those contradictions in all of those kinds of ways. And that's also something that then makes our relationship with um, activist organizations
organizations, social justice movements, uh, environmental justice movements, complicated in, in various kinds of ways. Uh, I think really that one has to, as, as a scholar, one really has to think that through very carefully, because the impulse, of course, is, always, is just simply to kind of declare yourself to be an activist and pretend that there is no difference in your positionality and so on. And, you know, activists are always there to tell you, or people in communities are always there to tell you that, uh, wait a minute, you're, you're not, you're not really us in, in that way. And we're not, you know, one of the, the whole processes of, um, of becoming educated in this kind of way is a process of, um, uh, you know, uh, being, uh, of losing a set of organic connections with the community that you, you come from. And there's no going back in that kind of way, right? Um, whether you're a student or a professor, unfortunately, there is no off button in, in, that, in that kind of way, right? I think that's a really great tie-in for our kind of like series, mini series that we've been doing kind of on white supremacy within feminism and academia. So I really appreciate. Um... Obviously, when you think about this in terms of the way in which the university has been integrated with the colonial project and with racial capitalism from its modern moment of the 18th and 19th century from the enlightenment on onwards in, in that regard, that um, uh, the whole question of, of white supremacy has been connected to, um, uh, in a sense, the way in which universities are an institutional space, ultimately, of social mobility, but, you know, in the 18th and 19th century of command and control in, in, in that kind of, kind of way, right? And here, it's really important. This is one of the things that my research, uh, uh, you know, sort of aims at in that regard, is to think about this in terms of uh, all of the different ways in which white supremacy is predicated on this passing for white, uh, ways in, in which people are invited to pass for white. And it has its roots originally in the 17th century, 16th and 17th century, as uh, forms of cooperation and revolt by common people are, are basically broken up by the invention of modern racism, right? That people begin to distinguish themselves in terms of first this black-white category, and then that becomes the basis for, uh, you know, progressive uh, um, refinement of different ways of being black and white, and then ultimately whole theories of the world, uh, the world's population being divided into X number of races and so on, so on, so forth, right? So because capitalism has, is, uh, needs to keep growing, there are moments in time when the ways in which people can pass for white and therefore gain access to places and spaces, to resources, to knowledge, to things like safety and security, a state of peace, clean water, whatever it might be, that that um, that expands the conditions under which if you if you play by these rules, you will be accepted for white and then you'll have access to these kinds of things. But that at times grows. But we've been living now in a period of 30, 40 years where that's been contracting. It's not been in this kind of growth phase and so on. And that's why racism, far from disappearing, is reproducing itself in the most virulent forms and getting worse and worse uh, in, in, in the present as these crises uh, intensify. So um, that would be my last thought on, on this whole question of uh, 
white supremacy universities and and feminism. Well, the feminism part, I think that um, you know one of the key things here really is uh, um, uh, uh, a question of of um, if you think about this as a kind of what would be a feminist mode of production? What would be um, a, a feminist global economy in in, in this regard, right? And uh, as as ecofeminism argues in various kinds of ways, that a care form of value, as opposed to the commodity form of value, we should think about what it is that social cooperation and interaction between human beings and human beings exchanging goods and services and all kinds of things, symbols, signs, whatever, with one with one another, um, that. What is the most valuable thing that we can produce? Well, the most valuable kind of thing that we can produce is care and what, what some uh, ecofeminists call earth care in particular, right? And that is a different mode of production as this one begins to, is, you know, in, in uh, uh, paroxysms of crisis at the moment, uh, the task really is to build a different economy altogether in that regard. That puts that care form of value at its at its core. Yeah, I linked um, the Pirate Care website. I thought that was a really interesting look at exploring care, and I think the topic of care has been really politicized and really brought to Western attention, I guess, in the past year, especially. So, and when you're talking about like the proximity to whiteness and what passes at whiteness, it makes me think of like as an East Asian person how we have passed as white in many cases and privileged from that, but through like the very overt anti-Asian hate crimes that have come up, you see how you you never were truly white. There's always that othering process involved. I really appreciate you um, speaking about these topics today and your time. Thanks. It's been an honor to be here for sure. Yeah. That brings us to the end of this week's episode of Adam and Eve, Edmonton's only feminist news program. We produce this week's show in the studios of CJSR 88.5 FM in Treaty 6 territory. We're grateful to be in the traditional territory of the diverse indigenous peoples of this land. We recognize that colonialism is ongoing and violent. We encourage you to reflect on your own relationship further and ask what accountability would look like here and practice for yourself the communities you're part of and the larger systems that shape our daily access and opportunities. Also, big thanks to Dr. Mukherjee for contributing to this episode. We think it's really important to think about the ways in which we can integrate our care for others and for the land that we live on as part of our daily lives. We also appreciate uh, Dr. Mukherjee mentioning some important feminist thinkers for us to consider. For example, uh, he mentioned Sylvia Federici, a radical autonomist, feminist, Marxist and anarchist who co-founded the International Feminist Collective in 1973. She's still writing today, and you can read about her in a New York Times article entitled The Lockdown Showed How the Economy Exploits Women, She Already Knew. Silvia Federici has been describing for decades the exploitative nature of unpaid domestic labor that capitalism depends on for its development. 
Adam and Eve is a spoken word project of CJSR 88.5 FM in Edmonton, Alberta, and our journalism is funded by you, the listeners. For more information on our program and to send us any feedback, please contact us on our Facebook page under Adam and Eve, or tweet at us at Adam and Eve, all one word. We're always looking for more volunteers to help out, so if you're interested in any aspect of radio production, just get in touch. Thank you very much for tuning in. I've been your host, Luis Fuentes, and uh, have an adamant evening.